0: Australia at the time of the terrible bushfires of late 2019 and early 2020. This story tries to conjure up that sense of absolute environmental destruction. I've worked for many years in mental health services, and for some reason it seemed to me that having a mentally ill character involved in the tale would help to show how desperately vulnerable human beings are. Fire. All the colours of the rainbow... All the five senses, first in a blur, a whirlwind of synesthesia, then in crystalline precision, hard-edged, magnificent. These are the workings of the universe, up close, no detail missing. Overwhelming, overpowering. This is where beauty turns to evil. This is where wonder morphs into horror. The wind, the hot wind, the hot, terrifying wind, the wind from hell. And the slow screaming of the trees, rising to crescendo until every molecule is shrieking. And it moves over you, moves through you, moves into you. You are scorched in body and mind, in thought and word and deed. The world is undone. And then you see her face, you see her fear, you see her crying out to you. And you know, you know immediately that you are too late, that everything is too late And her hair is on fire, and her skin is on fire, and her eyes are boiling, bursting, exploding. And her face, her wounded human face is disintegrating, her flesh dissolving, her mouth, her beautiful mouth opens with the howl of death. And you look inside, you cannot help yourself, you look inside to see a thousand years of excruciating pain concentrated in a second. Her skull shatters in the heat of our bleeding star, And only the ever-falling ash of her inside you will remain. Only the memories falling into water, falling on the baked ground, falling on the soft sea. But you cannot escape this vision of her face, tortured by fire. You cannot escape. They will take me, and they will burn me in the woods. They won't take you. That's crazy. They won't take you. I won't let them. You won't be able to stop them. They have been looking for me. They know where I am. They will burn me. They will burn me in the woods. I promise you, look at me, I promise you, that it will not happen. It wasn't always like that, of course. It wasn't the only conversation that we had. Most of the time we were good together. We were happy, whatever happy means. We dealt with each other's darkness. I say, we dealt with it really well. We had been together forever... And sure, every now and then, I don't know how often exactly, maybe five times a year, yeah, about five times a year, the burning fears would start up. They would just appear, you know, in the middle of an ordinary day where nothing special had happened. It was always the woods, and she would never say who they were. But the certainty, the absolute conviction that this terrible, this barbaric thing would take place, it was, during the worst intensity, it was unshakable. And the look in her eyes... It wasn't terror, it was the fear, not of dying, not of actually being burned alive in the woods. No, it was the fear of not being forgiven for having such oppressive thoughts. She knew what the delusion could do to the people she loved, and knowing this, she could still not fight the power of that belief. That's madness. That's the savagery of madness, because only she had that comprehension of the incomprehensible. There were always fires in Australia, every year. It goes back to the beginnings. The Aboriginals burnt back the land to stimulate growth. But now, of course, the temperatures rising, less water, industrial greed, vampiric mining, climate change. I'm not denying it, I'm just saying we're living through it now. It's too late to wail and wring your hands and say, stop it. Stop a fire, yes, sure. Stop a raging bushfire. We can't. What we can do is burn, or flee, that's all. We moved up to the Blue Mountains to get away from the city, but still be close enough to our children. Sometimes we would meet them downtown, go for a meal, a walk by the coast, that kind of thing. But she had always had reclusive tendencies, and after a few years she didn't want to come with me anymore. I couldn't persuade her. She just said she didn't want to go, didn't need to see the city, had done with it. She still saw the children, obviously. They would come on up at the weekends or whenever, and it was fine. We'd do the whole Australian thing, the great outdoors, barbecues, bushwalks. And she was right not to want to go back to the city, because after she moved out to the mountains, she never had another hospital admission. She wasn't cured or anything, but I never had to make those lonely walks along the corridor of St James's again to see her sitting by her bedside, rocking slightly to and fro, drugged up to the eyeballs with toxic chemicals. I never had to talk with Dr. Penn Halligan again, never had to let him lecture me about monitoring compliance. So far as I was concerned, the mountains were the right place for her. She was mad, of course she was mad, but they contained her somehow. She could howl all her rage and torment into those rocks and trees, and they just took it all. And then she was peaceful, content even. I needed to get away from her as well. I needed to let her reverberate, as it were, in that landscape that she found so accepting, so healing. I went into the city a lot on my own, not always to see the children, but to work, of course, and to breathe a different air. It enabled me to come home refreshed and renewed and to permit us to continue the strange, fractured love that we were now able to nurture and support. We had accommodated ourselves as well as any to our circumstance. There, the reassurance of the past, nothing to trap you quite like that. It eases you back a few days to the time before absolute anguish. Sometimes we would go walking together, we would descend into the valleys, listening to the murmurs of the streams and waterfalls, the music of the forest. We would walk for hours, and we saw a host of marvellous things, "'Lyrebirds dancing with supreme arrogance in butter-bright clearings, "'possums scavenging at night, their moon eyes beaming with mischief, "'bandicoots and swamp wallabies, spotted tail quolls and greater gliders. "'We heard the sweet cacophony of the sheltered gullies. "'We eavesdropped on the whispering of the open forest slopes. "'We stood on the almost silent ridges and listened to the empty sky. "'It was enchantment, it was sacred.' It was deception. There is too much life, too much competition, too much hunting and killing and eating and dying and mating and growing and hunting and killing. Look closely at the trees. Look closely at the leaves and on the ground and in the rocks, every crevice, every hollow. You can see it, the seething fury of life, life driven by hunger for life, the gobbling, swilling insect world the microscopic plague of bacteria and virus, eating the world, consuming the world, a disgusting, never-ending quagmire of breeding and slaughtering and oozing and corrosion. Life is a cesspit. Life is a sewer. And the stink of it, the stink of it. We dwelt unknowing, unthinking, in a kingdom of parasites, interlocked, interdependent, preying, hatching, destroying each other. All of us all of us scrabbling on the earth for our little allotted time, dispensable and disposable. For when the fire comes, it rips the fabric of the world. We are its fuel, that's all we are, running but unable to hide, tethered to the inferno. Should we pity life? Should we pity ourselves? When the fire moves through the mountains, then the animals move before it, the birds first, then the mammals... And the reptiles, the insects, they surge with blind panic into the ambush, into the water, into the river, into the lake, onto the roads, and they are mown down, decimated. They are burned alive, incinerated. The wave of extinction breaks over them, and when we see the lucky few, the unlucky few, who have found some temporary refuge, whose lungs have not been shredded by the flames, we cannot help but pity Our hearts of stones are momentarily hearts of flesh. The wounded, limping creatures, the innocent beasts, the dumb livestock of what's left of the wild. No longer that writhing, impossibly fecund swamp of organic mass. Pity them, then, the baby kangaroo keening for its mother, the charred cockatoo squawking in the smoke, the koala skinned alive by conflagration. Pity them, if you have pity left. They will take me. they will burn me in the woods they won't take you that's crazy they won't take you i won't let them you won't be able to stop them they have been looking for me they know where i am they will burn me they will burn me in the woods i promise you look at me i promise you that it will not happen her deep hazel eyes her soft chestnut hair her grace when she danced her smile a blossom of rapture And they told me, my friends, my guardians, my legislators, they told me, she's not right in the head, that one. So I knew. I knew all along, and I did not mind. We tripped the light of New South Wales. We scuffed along its dazzling coast, and we loved ourselves to exhaustion. A spell was upon us, and we revelled. She was honest and open, and her heart had no malice. She described her dreams. She described her fears. She told me, They were mostly under control, that she was usually able to calm them, speak to them, and soothe them. And I never mocked her, for I knew this was her reality, that could not be persuaded or argued against. There was no evidence that the sane world could produce to disprove her fear, and so it would erupt and dishevel her, but it would also die down and stay dormant. We lived in the time and spaces in between, that's all, and we embarked upon our future. "'Settled now inside each other. "'The days dimmed down into the mundane. "'We worked at our jobs, we rented, then we bought. "'We drank a little too much, we grew a little fatter. "'A daughter was born, and then, "'just when it seemed like that was that, a son. "'And our lives were wrapped around their lives, "'protective, bored, inspired, exhausted, delighted. "'Our normality was the equal of anyone's normality. "'Even the periodic outbursts of madness.' and the hospital trips and taking the children to visit their mother in trepidation even that became just an expected part of the rhythm there i am in the family room the children are crawling about on the carpet which is deeply stained they are playing with their toys but they soon slow to petulance and irritation when are we seeing mummy soon when is soon just a little longer the ward rounds always overrun The invitation stresses that you must be prompt, but there is no quid pro quo. Dr. Penhalligan is very thorough. Eventually I am ushered onto the ward proper and into the court of the Crimson King. And a kindly nurse waits with the children. There he sits, the oracle himself, smug with infallibility, replete with disciples on each arm. Two junior doctors gaze at the King. Other professionals, each with impeccable credentials, fan out around the throne. I am shown my place, and there she sits, unruly in her distraction, but dulled down now to a twitch and a grimace. We plod through the routine. She's much better, but not quite ready. We really would like you to consider an injection. We must all do our best to reduce the levels of stress. We must indeed, but what has been done about the burning in the woods? A long-term fixed delusion and impossible to shift. But with total compliance, there is really no reason why further hospital admissions can't be avoided. If you floss regularly, you will never need another filling. Something like that. Goodbye, and maybe next week. What lovely children. Though he's never seen them. Goodbye, then. And I take her arm and guide her out, and out again to the family room where there are hugs and kisses and tears. Yes, they have had to deal with the accusations and the teasing... They've had to cope with the snide comments and the playground barbs. They have been bullied by our situation, and they have come through. They grew despite, because, notwithstanding. And now the gasp of pride, the extraordinary love, the sense of achievement, I try to squeeze into their accomplishment and steal a moment or two of indulgence, and the selfish glide to small credit. Well, who wouldn't? We did parenthood, good enough parenthood, and will not stand humiliated there. I knew there was danger. The fire warnings were constant. The arrow was always on red. The decision to evacuate, to leave all your worldly goods, is not taken lightly. But anyone who lives in the mountains, anyone who lives in a high-risk area, must be ready, is ready, to leave when the authorities, and their own common sense, tell them it is time to leave. And we would have. We were not ignorant survivalists. We were not redneck deniers or millionaire morons. We had a plan. We knew there might come a time when we would have to flee and leave it all behind. We accepted that. We would have made good our departure without fuss. No sentimental clinging to home as castle. But the fire, this fire, it outpaced the warnings. The wind blew one way and the threat was a good twenty kilometres from us and getting more distance. And in the space of one hour, the wind changed. The tinderbox forest embraced the blaze and wiped out our existence. That was the day. That was the day, and I was hopelessly, shamefully, unforgivably too late. I worked for a distribution company of organic wine. The internal market and for export. What could be more eco-friendly and clap-happy? Well, not us. The life cycle assessment of wine production shows that small organic producers have the worst environmental performance. No pesticides or fertilisers, but excessive water use, sucking dry the already fragile river systems of Australia. No high-tech machinery, but an over-reliance on the tractor, which isn't going hybrid any time soon. Also, lower yields in organic growing contribute to the highest amount of CO2 on a ton of a crop of grapes of any wine production method, And then there are the same factors that affect all wineries, the production of glass bottles and fuel combustion in the planting of vines. But being small and beautiful, that is precisely the main selling point for organic wine in the craft shops and the gourmet restaurants of Sydney. I was complicit then in the great unravelling, knowing but only at the bottom of my little conscience, only aware in the fleeting glimpses I caught of myself, of our business, of our holier-than-thou purity, without the make-up. Then I understood, fully and with nothing to excuse us, except the usual, that everyone is involved. How could we do any different? What alternative is there? Aren't we just trying to make a living, and aren't we to be commended for doing it differently, doing it in a way that enables us to lie to ourselves more easily?' Here comes the billionaire on his motor yacht ploughing his private furrow from the north shore to the jetty at the opera house. Blame him. There go the financiers, the international currency speculators, the derivative merchants, the property magnates, the plurality of plutocrats. Blame them. We're only the middlemen, the little people, the minions. And there is the government, digging up what's left of the great southern land to sell it to the highest bidder. It must not, it cannot stop. For what else would we do? be kinder, gentler, more equal, nurturing, sharing, tending, shepherding. But there's nothing left to conserve. We have consumed it all, gorged on it, devoured it, hopelessly, helplessly addicted to our gluttony. Look at Australia from space. A vast, cracked, parched, drained, famished wasteland. Those little artistic touches of green at the edges, they're just for show. They have no chance of creeping back from the coast.' The blue mountains, the ridges and the valleys of paradise, the biodiversity of the geological wonderland, Chimera. Illusion, all in retreat, all in irreversible defeat. Observe, observe now here the creatures of Australia marching towards oblivion. Shall we go with them? What is there left to save? I had set off in the morning... The crisp, bright morning. I had cycled into Katoomba, chained the bike, and boarded my usual train. Choo choo! All the way down the mountain to Central. Then, because I was early, a nice walk along to the turn into Glee Point Road. Oh, to be a hipster, now that summer's here. The fashions, the faces, the tats and the tans. Merrily I strolled along and arrived at my office full of cheer and sunny smiles. It was hot, but it was always hot. Our office had aircon. We were cool fools. And then an hour later, Now, it's here. I don't know what to do. And it seemed immediately, the concerned colleagues at my shoulder, You're in the Blue Mountains, man. They're roasting. And it dawned, it dawned in a way it had never before, that this was the nightmare. This was the real thing. Reassure. Try to reassure. It's okay. I'm coming. I'm on my way. I'm nearly there. They will take me and they will burn me in the woods. They won't take you. That's crazy. They won't take you. I won't let them. You won't be able to stop them. They have been looking for me. They know where I am. They will burn me. They will burn me in the woods. I promise you, look at me, I promise you that it will not happen. A cab this time. Me, sweating in the back, cursing the traffic on the Parramatta Road and Broadway, running across Railway Square. Huge unintended tip. Sprinting, overweight, out of condition, to catch the mountain train, almost empty, with twenty seconds to spare. So have you left the house? I can't. The fire is everywhere. How? When? Didn't you see it? Feel it coming? Didn't they say? They were too late. They can't get here. They've given up. You've got to leave the house. I can't. Please, I can't leave the house. And then the signal. It evaporated, as if mobile phones had not yet been invented. Completely dead. Defunct. Call the kids. Yes, call them. Ask them to keep trying her number, knowing it was hopeless. Just get there. Just get there, Dad. But do you know how long the mountain train takes? Do you know the slow despair of its winding, climbing, winding? The beautiful ride, the glorious views? Yes, except now, all of them incandescent in the splintering air. Dry as a bone this morning, but still green and blue and yellow and brown. But now, the smoke, the flames and the smoke... I had once seen molten copper being poured in Mount Isa. It was the same. Put your hand to the glass and feel the otherworldly furnace out of the blue and into the black. I descend at Katoomba into the suffocating smoke. There is no air, not as we know it, only the drifting, billowing, mephitic cloud stretching its tendrils into every hollow, reaching into your lungs to coat you with its filth. There are people here. All running, stumbling, and crying out. And the coughing, everyone is coughing as they strain the ash soaked atmosphere for oxygen. You navigate with your memory. There are blocked exits and cordoned off roadways everywhere. The monochrome town feels like it is sinking into the mouth of a volcano. Dark shapes swirl and collide. I find my bicycle by sheer force of habit, unchain it in the strangling gloom, and pedal off into police barricades and fire truck maneuverings. I can hear the sound of helicopters above me, but I know the back roads of this place. I know the laneways and the overgrown paths, so I disobey the loud hailed commands and I duck and weave through the chaos. Down through the circles of hellfire I go, through every mode of burning. Ridiculous, reckless, desperate to find her, to find her in the charnel house of combustion. I know what my chances are, I push on regardless, but I slow down. I am wading through the viscous tar of the smoke and it blisters my throat. I reach out, I touch the wall of pain and suddenly everything is illuminated. For a brief moment I stare into the heart of the sun, the great kaleidoscope of beauty, its myriad colours dazzling beyond my comprehension, shining in the white-hot cosmos of death. I run forward, I can hear her voice, This is our street, this is our house, just here, down here, a few more steps, a few more. I look at my blackened hands, I look around me, I am encased in fire, a dead man ignited, I am the angel of light, I pass out. My body was dragged to safety by someone, some cruel rescuer, my by-then flayed and half-cooked body with its third-degree burns and its permanent disfigurement. The marks of my failure branded upon me for all to survey. The red, raw, rotten meat of me. A walking carcass of disgrace. And he couldn't even find her, the poor freak. Couldn't even catch a last glimpse. For she was long since devoured by the fire. She was long since burned alive. And he hears her screams. He hears them still. Look at the fluttering of his eyelids. Look at the way he clamps his hands over what's left of his ears. He hears her. That's all he hears, in there, all the colours of the rainbow, all the five senses, first in a blur, a whirlwind of synesthesia, then in crystalline precision, hard-edged, magnificent. These are the workings of the universe, up close, no detail missing, overwhelming, overpowering. This is where beauty turns to evil, this is where wonder morphs into horror. The wind, the hot wind, the hot terrifying wind, the wind from hell. And the slow screaming of the trees rising to crescendo until every molecule is shrieking. And it moves over you, moves through you, moves into you. You are scorched in body and mind. In thought and word and deed the world is undone. And then you see her face, you see her fear, you see her crying out to you. And you know, you know immediately that you are too late, that everything is too late, And her hair is on fire and her skin is on fire and her eyes are boiling, bursting, exploding and her face, her wounded human face is disintegrating, her flesh dissolving, her mouth, her beautiful mouth opens with the howl of death and you look inside, you cannot help yourself, you look inside to see a thousand years of excruciating pain concentrated in a second, her skull shatters in the heat of our bleeding star and only the ever-falling ash of her inside you will remain, only the memories falling into water, falling on the baked ground, falling on the soft sea. But you cannot escape this vision of her face tortured by fire. You cannot escape. I promise you that it will not happen. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please share. Thank you.